Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, many of you say, well, you're just starting to settle in. <clears throat> we, we like to time it so that you have a good sitting on the last day, so you kind of remember, oh, that was good, maybe I'll do another one. <clears throat> no, but as I, I said earlier, it takes a few days to settle in and By now, maybe you've seen just little stretches of mindfulness, maybe even just a few moments of mindfulness strung together. Uh, How many people have have noticed that? Isn't it amazing? It works. I'm not saying you sit down and you're just there from beginning to end, but even just seeing a few moments where you're kind of landing in the present, saying, oh, this is what it's like to be here for my life. How cool. And then once you kind of get a taste of that, you just want to, if you're like me, and many people just want to live more and more here in the present because everything else is secondhand. We've heard talks, or you've heard talks, uh, we've given talks on uh, what we're doing here and why we're doing it, and then a, a really beautiful talk on, uh, on the Buddha's path and on coming to terms with, with suffering in, in life, and uh, Sharda gave just a, a really beautiful talk last night on um, uncertainty and letting go. So tonight, as this is the, the last night of the retreat, I wanted to give a talk on the good news, that this is really a path about happiness. Sometimes that's lost in the, in the way that teachings are presented. There is suffering in life, the first noble truth, There's a cause of suffering. There's a path. Sorry, there's the end of suffering and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. And sometimes you can forget, oh, this is about happiness. It's not just about suffering. And I wanted to give you a little bit more incentive for doing this besides the moments of mindfulness that you've touched and and realize oh this is good to be here in the present what we're doing here is creating the conditions and more and more um, heading in the direction of greater well-being as probably many of you know um, I've been 
exploring about happiness for uh, for some time and wrote a book and teach this course on awakening joy. And I wanted to share a little bit about first why I have done that and what I've found in the teachings about happiness and well-being. When I first got turned on to the practice, this is back in 1974, I was in a lot of suffering. I was very insecure and uh, lost in my thoughts and not feeling very good about myself. And then I was exposed to these teachings and heard uh, Joseph that first summer at Naropa and he was saying that it's possible to not be lost in your neurotic thoughts, which had never occurred to me as a possibility before. But there was something about the way he said it that just really rang true and I believed him and I really went for it. So if you have a lot of suffering in your life or you have not somehow opened up to the joy or happiness or well-being that, uh, that you'd like to, don't, uh, don't be discouraged. You can be more motivated than many people as I was, to just really go for it. And I did go for it and did a lot of retreats and saw uh, early on the the benefits of the practice. And I had what is sometimes called a a pretty long honeymoon period where I just was telling everybody, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful, you know. (laughs) My friends kind of, you know, kept their distance, okay, you know, nice that you found something. You know. <laughs> I, and then I realized I didn't want to turn people off, so I just kind of gradually got into a little bit softer cell, you know. And you, you might find this if you're not proselytizing too much and just more and more let the teachings move through you that uh, people might ask you, well, what are you into anyway? How many people, has anybody experienced that? People just want to know what you're into? Yeah, just. So I had that long honeymoon period. And then for a while, I lost my joy. I became very serious about practice. Dead serious about (laughs) practice. And I became a very serious practitioner. And somehow I distorted the message of the Buddha and thinking that it's not okay to appreciate life and enjoy life and uh, which, is a, which is a part of my nature, is a part of my nature. Um, and there was this, little, this conflict in me for some time This is not so unusual where people get very serious about practice. And I want to share with you a a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, a wonderful Theravadan monastic, one of the most highly respected monastics in in Theravadan Buddhism. He's a a Westerner from from the States. This is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. 
If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So I had this distorted idea, as Ajahn Sumedhu is pointing to, and it wasn't so unique to me. And I, at some point, reclaimed my natural love of life, really, and celebration and appreciation for the goodness in things. And um, I decided to take a look and see where I had gone wrong and what the Buddha really said about happiness and well-being. The Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness. And if you go for the highest happiness, all the other happinesses will be experienced. And it's okay to experience them. These are blessings and gifts in life. The Dalai Lama, probably many of you are familiar with his book, The Art of Happiness. He starts out that book with the sentence, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book. (laughs) The purpose of life is to be happy. What can that mean? When we are truly happy in ourselves, when we have true well-being, then all of our noble qualities can shine through unobstructedly. So I looked and saw that there's many, many expressions of well-being and happiness and joy. There's in the four Brahma-viharas, if you see the buildings, you know, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, Joy is one of the divine abodes, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the factors of absorption, one of the jhana factors, and a few different translations from piti, which is bliss or rapture, pamoja, which is gladness, sukha, which is happiness, and a whole range of different states of well-being from peace, contentment, 
ease that are all in this continuum of well-being. And when I use the word joy, I'm talking about this well-being that is our natural state. We were born with this. If you, you know, if you're around a baby that's fed, diapers changed, a little bit of love coming their way, what do they do? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? You know, that's why we love being around babies because it reminds us that place inside of us. And it's true for adults as well. If you put an adult in an MRI, an fMRI machine, and that person um, doesn't have any physical um, pains and stress, nor mental stress, that's a big one right there, but if they are free of stress, what the brain exhibits is calm, conscious, creative, caring, and content. That's the natural state of an adult who is free of stress. That's why the the Buddha said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering because the end of suffering, dukkha is sometimes translated as stress as well as suffering. When there's no stress, then our natural goodness shines through. So I, um, when I, I looked at the teachings, uh, there were three principles that really jumped out at me that I like to share with, with people that um, are not just theoretical, but that can be applied in one's life in a very practical way to cultivate well-being and joy. And again, when I say joy, I'm talking about all these flavors of well-being. Mm. So the first principle has to do with the teaching on wise effort. You know, as you spin the, the wheel there, you probably saw among those eight, there's wise effort or right effort. And what wise effort literally, the literal translation of wise effort has four components, two having to do with unwholesome states and two with wholesome states. One is to guard against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. A second, to abandon or overcome unwholesome states when they have arisen. A third is to cultivate or develop wholesome states that haven't yet arisen. And the fourth is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they have arisen. Okay, so what are unwholesome states and wholesome states? Unwholesome states are states that lead to suffering, that themselves are suffering and lead to more suffering. States like anger, fear, um, ill will, Um, grasping, confusion, jealousy, all of those states that are agitated, 
and you can feel how they feel in the mind and the body when you're experiencing these unwholesome or akusala states. There's a contraction, isn't there? The mind gets tight, the body gets tight, gets agitated, and it's unpleasant. Wholesome states are states that are themselves happy and lead to more happiness. States like love, kindness, patience, generosity, compassion, peace. All of these states are states that open us up. They feel good and they lead to more well-being. So he said, not just to guard against those unwholesome states, but it's a good thing to cultivate the wholesome. And when it's here, to maintain and increase the wholesome states. Now, your mind might say, well, gosh, that sounds like it could get into attachment. You know? Like, you're feeling good? Yeah, this feels good. Let's increase it. Let's bring it on. Come on, turn it up. There's a problem here, though. Because as soon as there's grasping for the wholesome, as soon as there's wanting more, you've just gotten into an unwholesome state of grasping. So it's a kind of tricky thing. Have you seen that with a meditation? Oh, God, that was so good. How do I get it back? How do I keep it here? Uh-oh, what if it goes? You know, you might f- be feeling really good. And, oh, this is so sweet. What if it goes? <laughs> Where did it go? <laughs> so, but he does say it's a good thing to let those wholesome states expand and deepen. So that's the trick. How do we do that without grasping on for more? Anyway, that's the first principle to really um, not only cultivate the wholesome states, but as I was looking at it, to see where happiness really lies. And we can get deceived in thinking that happiness lies someplace else than these states. And as exhibit A of this, um, I have an ad that somebody gave me a while ago This is called The Gold Shivers. It's a two-page ad. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. Uh, uh. Here's the ad. The Gold Shivers. That electric excitement. That thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Here's the second page. You can see the woman. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. 
It's brilliant, right? You might not even care for jewelry, but you read that and say, oh, I want some too. And those messages get in, even if you don't think they do. You know, you say, oh, I know, that's just Madison Avenue. That's just mad men, you know, doing their thing, right? Well, Coca-Cola, for instance, pays a million or two bucks for 30 seconds of your time on a Super Bowl. It's probably more than that these days. So that you can see for a few moments somebody drinking Coke and having a great smile on their face. Mmm. Because that gets in there. And it conditions the brain, whether or not you realize it. And by a study from, uh, this is about 11 years ago, uh, that was done, which I think is you know, way conservative now, the average American gets, would get in that study 3,000 jolts of messages like this every day. You know, unless you're on a retreat like here, <laughs> Then it's, what's for lunch? Okay, that's it. That's about it, though, right? That's what you're fasting from. This is very powerful conditioning. So it takes some practice to see, oh, that's not where happiness lies, even though those neural pathways are set up in the mind. And this is where understanding wholesome states and realizing this is where the happiness really is instead of the gold shivers. Let me, let me ask you, um, what, think of something that brings you joy. You might close your eyes for a moment and oh, just think of what activity or what experiences or what brings you joy. You might just get in touch with it now for a moment. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let's just take a few comments, one at a time. Raise your hand. Yeah, Keith. Your dog. Yeah, playing with your dog. That's almost always one that's said. I can relate. Yeah, Lloyd. Say again. Being with Rachel Aaron. Rachel Aaron. Rachel Aaron. Is that somebody in your life? Okay. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought maybe I was missing out. I say, okay. Yeah. Being with a loved one, somebody you really care about. Yes. Hugging my sons. Hugging your sons. Yeah. Michael. Singing. Singing. I love it. Yeah. Behind. Yeah. Baby. Kissing and holding a baby. Yes. Playing piano. Playing piano. Music. Yeah. Dancing. Yes. Right. Exercise, yeah, feeling in your body. One more. Of sharing a meal with your family, right? Beautiful. Did anybody say their jewelry? (laughs) All of those things are free, so it's kind of subversive. Oh my goodness, what do we do with that? So that's the first thing to see where happiness lies, and it's an experience that's available a lot more accessible than many of us realize. You know, 
oh, I don't have time for fun, excuse me, I don't have time for well-being, I've got important things to do, you know, or when I go on my vacation, you know, then, and I, I like to go on vacations myself, but it's much simpler than that. So this is the first thing, to see happiness, there's this well-being is very accessible to us. Second principle that has really jumped out at me from the teachings is one discourse that the Buddha uh, gave. It's a, it's a lesser known discourse, but it's really impacted me where he talks about the gladness that arises with that wholesome state. Whether it's playing with your dog or dancing or um, being with, with a dear friend, there's a gladness that accompanies it, isn't there? He says, pay attention to that gladness. And he gives the example, say you're in the middle of a generous act. He recommends saying to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, thinking to oneself, I am generous one experiences the gladness connected with the wholesome. And that gladness opens the heart, delights the heart, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth, and that gladness is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. You know, you might be having a, a bummer of a day and somebody you love says, hi, how are you doing? Oh, it's so good to see you. And your whole day drama can evaporate in a moment. Or you put on a song and start singing with it. That's my therapy, you know. When all else fails, I'll, I'll, be, I'll put on something, uh, a CD, and just let it rip. And it usually kind of changes things. So to pay attention to that gladness, this is a very important way, aspect, to maintain and increase that wholesome state. Now, he says, thinking I'm generous, he's not saying, hey, aren't I wonderful? Check out how, how generous, I am really generous. Everybody see how generous I am? You know? <laughs> That's missing the point. He's saying, feel how good it feels for generosity to just move through this being. How good that natural state feels. This is also found in neuroscience that when we pay attention to those wholesome states, they are deepened in our being. And this is a, a very important thing because, <coughs> excuse me, because our brains are often wired up to see what's wrong. This is how we're put together. There's this little almond-shaped cluster in the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala scans the horizon for problems. And it's a good thing, it keeps us alive. However, 
we can have overactive amygdalas, particularly when we're stressed, the amygdala is really in firing mode. As my buddy Rick Hansen, who wrote a book called Buddha's Brain, says, our brains are Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative ones. <laughs> that you can have positive experiences and all of a sudden you have one negative one and that colors everything. And I, I read in one study that it often takes, um, when you've had one really negative experience, it takes seven positive experiences, I think that's the, the result, to overcome, to kind of get you back to one, uh, to stasis. So we get overactive and we often can miss the gladness connected with the wholesome. That's why it's so important to really let it sink in. And what we're doing is starting to train ourselves with mindfulness to notice, all, not only to cultivate the wholesome states, but to notice them when they're here. So that was the, that's the second principle. One, to uh, notice the wholesome, to be aware of wholesome states and cultivate them. Two, to be with the gladness connected with them. And then the third principle that uh, I, I've been moved by in the Buddhist teachings, very simple, he says in one discourse, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? If you frequently think and ponder upon how life is a drag, how everybody around is going to disappoint you, how um, humanity is going down the tubes, you will have ample evidence to corroborate your theory. And not only that, that's what you will look for and that's what you'll find. And you'll miss out on all the good stuff. If you frequently think and ponder upon how really everybody wants to feel loved and accepted and underneath whatever that exterior there's that yearning for acceptance and belonging and love and that there's a goodness in there that wants to be activated or how amazing it is to be alive or how nature is this um, one miracle after another or how blessed your life is, if you frequently think and ponder upon that, that's what you'll notice. Not to pretend the other isn't true, but you'll just start to notice that more and more. The, um, again, in neuroscience, <coughs> the axiom is um, neurons that fire together, wire together that those are the neural pathways that get set up and that becomes the default where you are. But that if you practice over time, frequently thinking and pondering upon, for instance, the goodness in life, you start to shift your default setting and more and more be able to notice that. 
So these three principles can be practiced, cultivating wholesome states, being here for them, and also um, practicing them over time. Now you might say, uh, well, you might, what's the point of seeing that, being happy or seeing the happiness when there's so much sorrow in life, so much suffering? So this is a very good argument to just kind of be stuck in seeing what's wrong. Except when we just see what's wrong, we're missing out on the true reality. Life is made of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And if you only see what's wrong, if you only look at the sorrows, it's very debilitating and despairing and depressing. If you only look at the joys, you're living in la-la land and you're, you know, you're, you're not really dealing with reality. But if you, the more you can see the goodness, the more you can hold all the pain and the sorrow and actually want to make a difference in the world. And I'll, where is it? Remember read to you a a passage that um, I really love from uh, Howard Zinn, the the great historian who passed away a couple of years ago, who wrote the people's history of the United States, the real version, not the whitewashed version. A a realist, but uh, a very uh, beautiful high high being. This is from an essay, The Optimism of Uncertainty. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning world, spinning top of a world in a different direction. We want to be inspired by life so we can make a difference. So then the mind might say, well, I don't know if I I really want to be happy. Does anybody here not want to be happy? Now, you might be fighting back your hand saying, yeah, sometimes I like being grumpy. You know? I know that's part of being human. But if that's how you're feeling, I like being grumpy. That's your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But you're the one that's choosing it. But deep inside of us, everybody wants well-being. And if you take a look at what you do, every action that you do 
in one way or another is a movement, whether it's wise or unwise, a movement towards what you think will make you feel better. As distorted or confused as that might be, this is what is motivating us. We want to feel better. The trick is to know, again, where happiness really lies and to not be confused. But this notion that we are moved by something that is really continually looking for our for happiness can be a source of real inspiration. Even as misguided as it is, it is a movement that's looking out for your well-being. And the source of it is actually wholesome. I want to feel happy. I want to feel good. I want to be at peace. So this is just really activating that place that truly is wanting well-being and then putting it, facing it in the direction of true well-being. By the way, happy people are not happy all the time. Uh, I, many of you know, I, I, I love this book that I used to use as the basic text for the joy course, um, How We Choose to Be Happy. Um, by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, the subtitle, The Nine Choices of Truly Happy People. And these, these guys who are friends of mine now, and they come to speak at the Joy Course, they went um, for three years researching truly certifiably happy people. <laughs> and they, they go to a town in rural Alabama and say, who's the happiest person here? You know, they go to a diner, for instance, and people would say, oh, Shirley, she's happy. And then they'd speak to, they'd speak to Shirley and they say, are you happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. Well, can we speak to somebody who might know you in a different setting, like your work or your relatives? You know, and then they'd interview them and they'd say, Shirley's really happy. And then they would interview, an in-depth interview with Shirley and say, why are you so happy? And they distilled these nine common choices that all of these people had. And what they found, among other things, is that truly happy people are not happy all the time. If you've got a smile on your face and saying, I'm happy, yeah, interview me. They had a few people who said, I'm happy, I should be in your book. I'm happy all the time. They were living in denial, basically. <laughs> but people who, are true, who truly know well-being are here for the whole show of life. They're here for the, for the goodness of life and open up to it and don't miss it. They are here for the sorrows in life and aren't afraid of it and it doesn't overwhelm them. And they're engaged with life, able to be here for it all. And what I've seen in my own work on, on this topic, the essence of what I call awakening joy is a feeling of starting out with authenticity being right where you are, just like we're doing here in, in, the, in the practice, seeing things just as they are, not pretending. And through that authenticity, there's a connection 
with yourself, with others, with life, and out of that authenticity and connection, if it can be held with some wise perspective, there's an aliveness that comes through us that I call joy. So, how to activate this place uh, that's rooting for your well-being and happiness. And I'll share just a few, um, a few principles. And uh, you know, it's, it's a 10-month course and there are 10 different, um, 10 different wholesome states. And I don't think I'll be able to do it in 15 minutes. So, uh, but just to give you a sense of the possibilities not just in, in that course, but in your life. The main principle being when there's a wholesome state, don't miss it. Starting with the intention to be happy. And this is what Rick and Greg found in their book. That was the first step, the common um, denominator, starting with Everybody that they interviewed came in touch with that real intention for well-being and happiness. And it's not that they were born that way. Actually, many people, like, like I found, were motivated out of pain and sorrow to decide to go another way. It's possible. You have to get in touch with your intention. You have to put it in the forefront and not say, oh, well, when I meet the right person, then I'll be happy. When I get the right job, then I'll be happy. When I make enough money, then I'll be happy. When I'm successful, then I'll be happy. That's postponing it. And chances are, if you postpone it, when you get to that goal, you'll have some other imagined goal that you'll postpone your happiness for. So this is really saying, I want, I really want well-being. I want to feel good. I want to feel genuinely happy. So that's the first step. And as even if that doesn't come naturally to you, once you make that decision, that intention to change, you can change. And I'll, I'll share with you an anecdote around this. You might be familiar with the positive psychology movement. Martin Seligman, who wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, in the last oh, 15 or 20 years, it's been the, the major shift, paradigm shift, shift in psychology, looking for well-being instead of pathology. And um, this is him writing about how he started the positive psychology movement. The notion of a positive psychology movement began at a moment in time a few months after I'd been elected president of the American Psychological Association. It took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away and then came back. 
Daddy, I want to talk to you, she said. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> this was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul and the last 10 as a walking nimbus cloud in a household full of radiant sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. Just having that intention to change. So let me just ask you for a moment, go inside and just see if you're honest with yourself do you really want well-being in your life? Just imagine being more and more able to access that place of wholeness and completion and activate that place of true happiness. And if you could do this, just imagine getting better and better over the next six months, year, two years, more. And it just became more and more naturally your default setting. If that seems like a useful vision See if you can get in touch with the, the decision to give that to yourself. Not wishing or hoping it would happen, but just deciding to do your part and let life support you in that decision. No report card, no timetable, just saying, yeah, I really want that for myself. That decision is the most important one. That's where everything springs from. Just say it in whatever words ring true for you. I want to be happy or may I open up to all the, the goodness in my life. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. This is just what the Buddha said too. Everything starts with intention. That's what all of karma is based on. Through body, speech, and mind, intention is what creates karma. So, or as a Tibetan saying goes, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. That is the direction that you 
are heading towards, wise intention. That's in the Eightfold Path. Once you have wise understanding and see where happiness lies, wise intention is saying, okay, I'm going for it. Then even wider than just my own well-being, and we don't have time to do this, but just to widen your intention and see what really inspires you that is not only limiting it for yourself, but to feel the joy of contributing to the world. That's a much, even a much more profound source of, of well-being. Your intention includes others as well. But this is the start, having the intention to develop that. Second key step is mindfulness, just what we're doing here. Just like you came here with the intention to develop mindfulness. And as we've been talking about, mindfulness is the key to the deepest well-being. We've talked about it in a few different ways, but from a Buddhist psychology standpoint, here's something that might be additionally encouraging for you. Of all the factors of mind, there's 52 mental factors in Buddhist psychology. It's kind of like the deck you're, you're dealt. You know. Sometimes they think not everybody has a full deck, but, <laughs> but that is the full range, right? And there's wholesome and unwholesome factors, like I said before. Mindfulness is the one factor that weakens all the unwholesome states and strengthens all the wholesome states. That's amazing. Just in the moment that you are feeling your breath and truly here for it without wishing it were different, you're weakening greed, hatred, and delusion and all the unwholesome states that come from that and you're strengthening non-greed or generosity, non-aversion or kindness, non-delusion or wisdom and all the wholesome states spring from that. So that's one way that it works. It weakens the unwholesome, strengthens the wholesome and it also, when you are mindful of a wholesome state, you amplify the state. You bring it more to life. And that's quite extraordinary. As an example of how this goes, I'll lead, I'll share with you uh, the next wholesome state that I, I like to talk about, which is gratitude. Very simple way to access well-being. And it's one thing to feel gratitude or to know that you're grateful. It's another to really let it sink in. So this is more than just feeling good, but to feel what it's like to feel good. Uh, Rick Hansen, again, his formula is when you're having a moment of well-being, let it sink in for about 30 seconds. And if you can do that, you are really deepening those pathways in the brain. And his formula is, if you can do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes, that's a lot. (laughs) Six times in a day, over a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic increase in your well-being. Both because you're 
deepening those grooves and also you're starting to have your radar out for what's good. Try it and see. So here's one with gratitude. Gratitude is, uh, again, what the Buddha talked about in the, the Blessing Sutra to be, to, sutta, to be grateful, to be humble and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. He talks about all the blessings in our life that we, that we, should, uh, that we should acknowledge and, and notice when they're here. As one teacher uh, says, gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish. If you're going around grumbling and complaining and saying this is wrong and that's wrong and oh too bad that's off and what about that, there's no room for all the blessings to get in. You're too contracted. But when you say thank you, you open yourself up and are tuning in to all the goodness in life. So here's a little gratitude practice for you just to See, we can use mindfulness on the gratitude and you can kind of see how this can work. Close your eyes for a moment and bring bring some blessing to mind. Someone that you're grateful for or something that you're grateful for and to life for. And have an image of either that person or that circumstance. And as you get in touch with that image, just give a simple, silent thank you from the heart. Thank you. Now let yourself feel it. Just relax into that feeling. Thank you. Feel the landscape of the grateful heart. Take a breath. Bring to mind another blessing. Someone, something. Have an image. A sincere, simple thank you from the heart. Thank you. And then just relax into that experience. Just turn your awareness onto letting it register. Feel what it's like. Notice how it feels. That didn't take a whole lot. Free. Simple. Every time in your life that you're feeling appreciation for someone, let them know. This is karma 101. When you translate the thought into words or actions, that deepens the impact of that experience. Let somebody know. And then just rest in that feeling of connection and gratitude. Mm -hmm. 
Well, just to, to see that there's so many wholesome states. There's a feeling of, of connection that comes with love, of course, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and just to distinguish between that love that flows out and the pain of wanting, when you're feeling that generative love, uh, just resting in it. Mm, here's a little, a quick little exercise, seeing the difference. Bring someone to mind who you really love, have a, a warm connection, who's important to you. Okay. Have an image of them and uh, see them smiling and just send them some, some love, like, oh, may you really be happy. May you, may you feel my love for you. And as you see them, envision them, notice how that feels inside to wish that. Now for a moment, get in touch with how it feels when you want something from them, when you don't want them to disappoint you, or when you are hoping that they'll do what you want. Notice how that feels in the body, in the mind. Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a breath. (laughs) And once more, see them with that smile on their face and just send them love. How much you love seeing them happy. May you be happy. May you really feel my love for you. Once again, notice the difference. If there's that openness, just let yourself appreciate and delight in it. This is turning your mindfulness onto that beautiful feeling. There's the wholesome state of loving kindness, of course, and sympathetic joy. There's the wholesome state of really being kind to yourself. I hope you've learned in these few days, a number of people have said, oh, I'm starting to get, it really does make a difference if I'm kind to myself. Nobody is giving you a gold star when you beat yourself up. When you're kind to yourself and you really see all your goodness and beauty, then it comes out and everybody has it. There's the the wholesome state of expressing your caring and compassion, one of the highest forms of joy. Many others, when Charter was talking about letting go, the joy of letting go, how good that feels to lighten the load, to notice that. Then there's ultimately the joy of just simply being, where you don't have to cultivate anything. You're not trying to make something happen. But maybe you've gotten this in a few moments while you're here, when you just stop all your trying 
and relax completely and let life move through you, you don't need anything to be more whole or complete. This is pointing to the highest kind of happiness, just feeling your true nature as it shines through. This is uh, from Nyoshal Kempo. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing your true nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So to completely come into rest and just feel the miracle of being alive in this moment and not miss it. Ah, peace, goodness, awareness, awaring itself. So all of these are basically the principle of turning to the wholesome, noticing the gladness connected with it. Basically, it's looking for the good as a kind of compensation and skillful means to overcome that amygdala. The more you look for the good, the more you'll find it inside and outside. And when you see it, don't miss it. Not only will you feel greater well-being, but you'll actually affect everybody around you because as you look for the good, you draw it out of them. How are you when somebody is around you and you sense they're seeing all your flaws? How do you feel? Flawed, don't you? Small, exposed. If somebody else, maybe they see all, they know all your flaws, but you're just seeing, you know, they're looking at how beautiful you are and they're seeing that, how do you feel? Beautiful, right? You have a lot more power than you realize to draw that out of everyone and to see it in yourself, to draw it out of yourself. So what we're doing here is a path to happiness, both cultivating mindfulness and being present for all the good in life. And in that, we can deal in a very skillful way with all the suffering and the sorrow. I didn't have time to get into uh, the fact that opening up to our suffering and sorrow is one of the most important vehicles for well-being and happiness. Um, for that, you don't have to read the book. But, <laughs> but just know this is not about just pasting a smiley smile on your face. It's opening up to the whole show and not being afraid because when your heart is touched by sorrow and suffering, that also opens you up in a very profound way and you realize you have the capacity and the, the compassion and the courage and the strength to hold it all. And that's where the true well-being and joy comes from. So that's your instructions. You know. 
see this path as something that's leading you on your onward, facing in a direction greater and greater joy and well-being, and that's your gift to the world. We need it. So I'll just stop here. Let's take a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.